It's a great honor to be able to come together and to worship the Lord upon the first day of the week. We have many visitors and those that are with us today. We're glad that you're here and we hope that you find everything to be done in a way that is scriptural in accordance with God's word. As we find in John 4.24 where we worship in spirit and in truth as God has commanded. We want to remember those that are on the road. We think of Brother Mike who is actually gone with his family this holiday season. We think of him. We ask that he and all visitors have safe travels. And I am thankful to this congregation and the eldership for giving me the opportunity today to speak in his absence. During this time of year, many people think to the birth of Christ because of the holiday season or what is commonly known as Christmas. Because of this, many people think that uh, this, this portion of, or time of the year is when he was born. The time of year is not the importance. The person is what is important. Uh, historically speaking, Christ was not born on December 25th. But historically speaking, Christ was born. Today, as we look at the birth of Christ, we're going to notice the humility in earthly beginnings. Truly, everything did, that Christ did throughout his life was with complete humbleness. It was humbling for us to see such a one as Christ that came to this earth. Think of this spiritual being in heaven in an eternal place that is perfect, a place where there is joy, a place where there is comfort, where there is no sadness, there is no death. But yet, Christ left that home because of us. We'll see the humility that Christ showed this morning in his birth. In his earthly beginnings, Christ showed us humility first in his abode. He was humble in the place that he stayed or the place that he came into this world. He was humble in his apparel, his garment. When he came into this world, he did not have much. He was humble in his anointing or his consecration. And finally, we will also know that he was humble in being abhorred or being hated. Christ was the perfect example of humbleness. The historical account of Christ illuminates his humble beginnings. It, it shows the great humbleness in coming into this earth. If I call this a story as I go throughout the sermon, I'm sorry, because I would like to think of it as a historical account. By the word story, I do not imply that it's something false or fictional. But in fact, the story or the historical account of Christ is fact. It's something that happened. It's something that's true. Although he was a king, his, his physical birth was far from majestic. As Christ comes into this world, he, he takes the lowest of places. He takes the lowest of times to come in to save his kingdom. Humble from his birth till the time of his death, Christ is our perfect example of humility. If you would be opening in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, and we'll focus mainly on this chapter as we go throughout the lesson. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Here it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went from Caesar Augustus 
that all the world should be registered. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all who went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph, Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who is with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Notice first, he was humble in his abode. When he came into this world, he wasn't at home where many would have, would have expected him. He wasn't at a place where, where he would later call home or he would later be, be known as his staying place. Notice in verses 1 through 3 what caused Jesus to be in this place. It was the tallying of the people. There was a registering that must take place. There was a census as we know it today. It came to pass that Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus called for this. This was through the will of God, through the plan of God, Jesus was not able to be at home. Jesus was born in the place that God had planned from the beginning. God uses all different people. In this case, God used Caesar Augustus in his plan to have him in Jerusalem. We notice that it says all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. It just turned out that through God's plan, Joseph was in that family. If he'd been of a different lineage, he wouldn't have went to that city. But God had a plan. God knew that the tallying of the people, the registering of the people would take place. And that would be where the Messiah, the Christ, was born. Notice the traveling of the people. Even from his birth, even from before his birth, Mary had to travel as though she, although she was pregnant, she was close to the time that she would bring forth child. Notice in verse 4 and following it says, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now remember this, Mary was, was very pregnant. She was almost to the point where she would bring forth the child and she had to make this trip. If you, if you research this trip, this was approximately 80 miles. This was a long trip for one that was about to bring forth a baby. And notice as it goes on, skip down to verse 6. It says, so it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. God had a plan that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. We see here his plan comes together. The prophecy went as God had planned. Now notice verse 7. The throng of people, the vast number, the great multitude of people. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. There wasn't a place for Christ to stay. There wasn't a place for him to go. Joseph and Mary could find nowhere. So they brought forth Christ and laid him in a manger. 
Christ wasn't born into this world in the, the fancy hospital that uh, we might be more accustomed to seeing. Christ wasn't even brought into this world from his own house, where some still today would have their, their children from their own houses. But while Christ was on a trip, while he could not find a place to stay, while the, his parents could not find a, an adequate place, a clean pl uh, a place where would have been normal for, for them to stay, they had to stay with the animals. They had to stay at a place where they had a manger, so evidently the animals would have been fed there. So we see, because of the great number of people, Jesus was born and laid in a manger. What he knew his home, what his first resting place was, was nothing more than a manger. He was humble in his apparel. When Christ came into this world, if you notice there at the end of verse 7, it said, at the beginning of verse 7, it says, they brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. He was wrapped in linen, strips of linen. We don't know necessarily the significance behind the strips of linen, but we know coming from heaven, being a king, he wasn't wrapped in fine purple. He wasn't laid in a, a nice soft bed or the most comfortable or the most luxurious of things. But he was just wrapped in swaddling clothes, just strips of linen that they wrapped him in. Notice also in verse 12, here it says, And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. This spoke into the shepherds. They were told there's something special about this child because he's in a manger and he's in swaddling clothes. They knew what they were looking for because the angel told them. The angel pointed out something that was important. So we have Christ found in a manger. We see the shepherds, verse 8 through 12. Here it says, Now they were in the same country, shepherds, living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I will bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now notice the shepherds were told by an angel. They were pointed out or pointed towards Christ. Look there. Go to the city. Go into Jerusalem and you will find this child. You will find the child who is the Christ, who is the Savior that was born. The shepherds were told something was important about his apparel. We see that Jesus was dressed in swaddling clothes. He was humble in his apparel. And we'll notice the spreading that takes place by the shepherds in verse 17. It says, Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. They went out and they told people. They went out and they spread the good news. An angel had appeared to them, had told them that the Christ was born. And they wanted the world to know. We ought to have the same desire today to go out and to spread the gospel. 
to go out and to tell the Christ was born. More importantly, the Christ died for us. Through that, we have remission of sins. We can find many accounts or many times where the apostles recorded us a job. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, we're told to go. Mark chapter 16, verse 15 and 16, we're told to go. Also Luke 2, verse 46 and 47, go. Go out and to teach the world, spread that news. When the shepherds found the Christ, they wanted to spread the good news of the Messiah. We also ought to have that, that same desire and that same zeal. We can also see that Christ was humble in his anointing. By anointing, we mean consecration. We mean what took place. He lived just like every other Jew. He lived according to the law. He had to follow the law just like everyone else. Otherwise, he wouldn't have fulfilled the law. Christ said he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. In living according to the law, in living perfectly according to the law, he fulfilled it. And he was the mediator of the New Testament. He then would give us the law that we live by now today, the New Covenant. Jesus lived just like all other Jews. You can look at Genesis chapter 17, verse 12. Genesis 17, verse 12, it refers to that of all Jews having been circumcised or on... on after their birth, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 12, it tells them that they are to be circumcised. And Jesus lived according to that. Genesis, Genesis chapter 17, verse 12 says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. If you look in Luke chapter 2, where we're, where we're reading, you'll see that this is what took place. This is what happened. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21. Here it says, And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Jesus was fulfilling the law. Jesus was doing what was commanded. His parents raised him according to the Jewish law. They lived by it. Jesus lived by the law of the Jews in that they had the days of purification. Notice down in verse 22. Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of do turtle doves, or two young pigeons. If you refer back to Luke chapter 12, verse 4, we'll notice that this purification process that takes place was a, a period of 33 days. It was a time period of 33 days where this purification would take place. This took place right then. Christ was consecrated to the Lord. Jesus lived by the custom of the Jews in all ways. Notice Exodus chapter 13. Verse 2. Exodus 13, verse 2. It 
It says, And Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. He lived by the custom of, he lived by all customs. Here Moses said, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of the Lord, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. He observed all these things. All the customs of Christ, all the customs of the Jews, Christ observed throughout his life. Finally, let's notice that Jesus was humble in being abhorred. Not many babies come into this world and are hated. I've never met one that never met a person that when they saw a baby did any more than said, oh look, how cute. Oh look at this precious child. There's always love, there's a happiness, there's a joy when a child comes into the world. But if you notice with Jesus, if you skip back to Matthew chapter 2, we have an account here where we see a hate for Christ. Because Herod the king did not understand the kingdom that Christ represented. Herod the king was worried that, that Christ would steal his thunder. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we'll notice that it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born? King of the Jews, for we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. We see Herod the king already has worry. He's got something in his mind where he says, Oh no, what is this that's coming about? Who is this that's going to take over my kingdom, that's going to destroy me and destroy the things that I stand for? Herod was worried. Herod knew he had to do something, and he's going to seek. To, to kill the Messiah. We see he's troubled in the first three verses, but if you continue on, starting in verse 7, it says, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. It had been a while before. It wasn't immediately that the wise men were able to get there. They determined when the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. We'll notice here that Herod's using trickery. He's trying to trick the wise men. He has a plan. He uses his evil plan to try and kill the Christ as we go down further. He had a plan to kill the Messiah. Notice as we continue down, it says in verse 9, we'll start there again. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And they saw the star. They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Notice verse 12. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Through the divine, 
through the Godhead. They were warned not to tell Herod. Don't tell Herod where Christ is because he's evil. He's going to act treacherously. He's going to try and kill the Messiah. Herod was treacherous in his actions. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Herod said, there's no way I'm going to let this child get the best of me. This young infant that isn't even two years old, he said, I will not let him destroy who I am. Herod acts treacherously. I can't imagine another child younger than two years old being hated like Christ. I can't imagine someone hating a child, period. His treacherous actions, though, they didn't work out. Because once again, God has a plan. God comes to them and tells them to escape and to leave. And Mary and Joseph do just that. They, they depart from that country. As we look at the historical account of Christ, there is no doubt that you can see humility. There is no doubt that you can see Christ was humble in his earthly beginnings. And it went on for his lifetime. Throughout his life, he lived a humble life. But what's that mean to you and me? What's that mean to us? Throughout the New Testament, Christ echoed a plan of humility. We're told to give ourselves the lowest seat. We're told to be humble. We're told to be of low spirit. Humbleness is important in the Christian life. Humbleness is what we ought to do. For the last point, let's notice humbling me. We've got to humble ourselves. We sing a song sometimes, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up. God is the one that will exhort you. Don't be the one that exhorts yourself because God will take care of that in the end. To be humbled would mean to be enslaved to Christ. In fact, if you look at John chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus says, you're not a servant. Why does he say you're not a servant? Because you know what I'm doing. John chapter 15 Verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father. I have made known to you. We serve Christ. We serve him in the things that we do. But he doesn't call us a servant because he cares about us. Because he expects, because he tells us what we ought to do. Verse 15, Jesus says, I don't call you a servant, but I call you a friend. That doesn't change the fact that we have to live by his commands. 
John 14, 15, he told us, if you love me, keep my commandments. We follow the things that he says. In humbling me, I don't know that there's a better definition of humbling oneself than that given in Romans chapter 12. If you would, look at Romans chapter 12 with me as we begin to close. Romans chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And he says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Notice verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. He says, brethren, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Verse 1. Verse 2, by being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Humility. It's something that we've got to adapt to. It's not something that that is the, the general thing that comes to our eyes. We've talked about a me society. Growing up in, in the area that we live, number one is me. Number one is a Christian, is everybody else. Number one is Christ, and before me is those that are around me. We see in Romans chapter 12, in verse 3, it says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but soberly. That's humility. Those three verses each define humility. That's what we ought to be. We're transformed, we're changed. We do the things that God has told us. In Christ's first sermon, or first recorded sermon, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble person. The person that's not thinking too highly of himself. James chapter 4 verse 6, but he says, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. The humble ones will be lifted up in the end, will be exhorted, will be exalted, will be put up on high. That's where we want to be. That's who we want to be. If we want to look at one that's, that's not humble, you can look at the picture of the, the Pharisee as, he, as he's speaking about the publican and he looks and he, he boasts about his prayer and shows how great and how holy he is. That's not humility. We don't want to be like that. You can see that recorded in Luke chapter 18. Because of time, we aren't going to go there. But in Mark chapter 8 verse 34, this is the last verse we're going to look at. Mark chapter 8 verse 34. This is a very, very well-known verse. But it carries a very important message. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus said, Whosoever will come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. 
crucify oneself and following Christ. It takes the person first being humbled to that point to follow Christ. Are we willing to be humbled? Today we just noticed the humility that Christ had in earthly beginnings. When he, when he started upon this earth, Christ was very humble. He was humble in his abode where he stayed. He was humble in his apparel, what he wore. He was humble in his being abhorred. And he was humble in being anointed and being consecrated and being given to the Lord. He followed the law just as he ought to. He was the perfect example of humility. We could go throughout the scriptures and look at the rest of his life and see the same humble spirit, the same humble man. But today, let's make sure we're that humble person. Are we ready to take up our cross and to follow him? That's the command that Christ gave us. If we haven't done it, it comes to us. It's our part to do just that. If you haven't become a member of the church, you haven't taken up your cross. If you haven't lived according to the scriptures, you haven't taken up your cross. Are you willing to follow the Messiah? Are you willing to believe in the Christ and to do what he says? We mentioned John 14, 15, where he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. He said, Do what I say. Are we willing to repent of our sins? Luke 13, 3 says, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. We've got to make a change. We've got to confess the Christ as our Savior. And we've got to be baptized, buried with him in water for the remission of our sins, for the washing away of our sins. If you want to take up your cross it all starts right there if you haven't done that there is no better day than right now there is no better time than right now if you haven't been living faithfully you're not taking up your cross it's time to make that right if you haven't taken up your cross if you haven't chose to follow Christ with every ounce of your being or if you've strayed from that path do it today take up your cross right now. If you have any need, come now as we stand and sing the song of invitation.